Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest is James, better known as Jamie, Kerchick. This is his second time on the podcast. Jamie came on last fall with Mike Pesca and Virginia Heffernan, his co-hosts on the political analysis podcast, Not Even Mad, which is currently on hiatus. He's back for a very different reason. On February 4th, Jamie published a very long and quite remarkable, even shocking article about the case of the film actor Army Hammer, whose reputation was annihilated back in early 2021 when he was accused of sexual violence and also cannibalism. Even though investigations have turned up nothing along those lines, the court of public opinion has held firm in its rebuke of Hammer, and there's been little incentive in Hollywood or the news media to take an honest look at the actual facts. But Jamie's article may be a significant turning point, and he came on the podcast to recap the story, talk about what it was like to report it, and reflect on the various cultural dynamics that allowed things to play out as they did. Jamie is a columnist for Tablet Magazine and a writer for the digital news and culture site Airmail, where his Army Hammer article was published. Jamie stuck around for some unrelated bonus chat about my pet question, how he feels about being the age he is, and that led to some other topics. For instance, how he feels about being gay amidst the so-called queer revolution, and how, as an elder millennial, he feels about Gen Z. That is great stuff as usual. So if you want to hear it, go to megandaum.substack.com and become a paying subscriber. In the meantime, here is my conversation about Army Hammer with Jamie Kerchick. Jamie Kerchick, welcome back to The Unspeakable. Thank you, Megan. You were on here uh, a few months ago with your erstwhile podcast co-hosts from Not Even Mad, Mike Peskin, Virginia Heffernan. Now for something completely different. You have written an astonishing piece, very long and just exquisitely reported about a subject that I thought I didn't really care very much about, which is Army Hammer and uh, just what the, the sort of constellation of events that led to this incredible reputational catastrophe. I want to talk to you about how you reported the piece, what it was like to go through the editing process of the piece, all of that kind of stuff, because as a journalist, I'm really interested. But before that, can you just sort of take us through this whole saga as concisely as possible without just reading your piece back? I know it's really long. Yeah. So Army Hammer is an actor, or let's just say was an actor. He's, He's the great grandson of Armand Hammer, the oil tycoon. He first became famous for playing the Winklevoss twins in The Social Network. Okay. He played both of them. He played that, both of them. That was yes. the, okay, right. That, that was his breakthrough role. That was a big deal yeah, at the time. Yeah, yeah, And then he he played the Lone Ranger opposite Johnny Depp. He played Clyde Tolson, who was J. Edgar Hoover's love interest in the Clint Eastwood movie, J. Edgar, opposite Leonardo DiCaprio. He had a very memorable role in the film Call Me By Your Name, which is a kind of independent film that did uh, very well with, with Timothy Chalamet, critically acclaimed kind of gay, gay romance story. And uh, was really riding high uh, on his career. He was set to star in The Offer, which was a miniseries about the making of the, the Godfather. He was set to play 
John Dean, the Nixon's White House Counsel, and Gaslit, a miniseries that Sean Penn and Julia Roberts were were in. So he was a real, you know, A-list actor, rich, famous, handsome. And in early January 2021, it all came crashing down when a woman who was operating an Instagram account called House of Effie, and she was only known as Effie at the time, started posting private DM messages, direct message conversations, showing Army Hammer expressing his interest in all sorts of BDSM and most kind of appallingly or most shockingly at the time, uh, cannibalistic uh, fantasies. Mm -hmm. And over the ensuing months, there were a series of allegations that came out from other women uh, who had had relationships with him. Uh, they were alleging that they that he subjected them to sort of kinky BDSM practices that it was unclear whether or not these were forced. The previous summer, he had announced his separation from his wife. Okay, I was going to ask, how old was he at this time? 34. I think he was 34, and he was married with two children. And he had what, by all appearances, was the kind of picture-perfect life. So when he and his wife announced their separation, his, his estranged wife, they haven't finalized the divorce yet, uh, his, his estranged wife, Elizabeth Chambers, who's a, a culinary personality, they announced it jointly on Instagram, and it seemed to be an amicable separation. You know, they referred to each other as their as best friends, and that they were moving on. But you know, they they loved each other still, and they wanted to care for their children, and that and, and that all came crashing down in the early months of, of January 2021. And then about six weeks into this, or really, I'd say two months into this collapse, um, he's lost every acting job. All those, all those uh, roles that I mentioned that he was set to play, they all fired him. Okay. Um, he was also he was uh, then Effie. She retained Gloria Allred, the the famous feminist lawyer Gloria Allred, mm -hmm. and she had a live stream press conference in which she alleged that Army Hammer had raped her in 2017, so four years prior, that he had raped her over the course of four more than four hours that he had banged her head repeatedly against a wall, that he had taken a riding crop and beat her feet with it, and she could barely walk afterwards. And so this was, this was the worst allegation to come out. And since that time, he has not spoken to the press. Uh, his lawyer at the time released a statement saying that these accusations were false and any uh, sexual relationship he had was, was consensual. But beyond that one public denial, he had not spoken to the press about any of this until last fall, I was approached by uh, an intermediary who asked if I would be interested in interviewing him and looking into the story. And there were no conditions. I mean, I, you know, I, I sat down with him and, and we, we, we spoke and the only condition was that he wanted to be able to you know, clear the quotes that I would use in the piece before they ran. Mm -hmm. And what was the status of the case at this point? So this is an interesting question, right? So that uh, an investigation was opened by the LAPD in early 2021, and it went on and on and on. And then last fall, it was reported that Gloria Allred had dropped Effie as a client. Mm. And the reason for it, purportedly, was that Effie had not signed an affidavit attesting to her accusations. And the other women were not really in the picture. The other women never filed any criminal charges or civil charges, right? So yeah, so there's so this legal process has been ongoing for over two years, almost two years at this point. 
the main accuser, the one who the only the only woman who has accused him of criminally liable you know actions, has reportedly refused to attest to those claims under penalty of perjury. Mm-hmm. Uh, her lawyer, who let's just say Gloria Allred is not known for being shy when it comes to taking high publicity cases, you know, drops this person as a client. Wow, which should tell you something. Something. I don't know what it. I mean, you can. <laughs> the listeners of your podcast can decide what they make of that. But and who has Gloria Allred? Just for some context, like who are her higher high profile clients? At the top of my head, I I, I can't I can't yeah, say that. I can't but either. I mean, she's she's a household name. She's a household in name. The, I mean, she's uh, no, sexual ac- sexual absolutely. assault accusation world. Yeah. Yes. Right. So so when Gloria Allred drops you as a client, I think that says something. I, th- I just think that given given all the allegations that were made about him and the and the conclusions that the entire world seemed to have jumped to about him, I think it's fair to draw conclusions from the fact that Gloria Allred is no longer representing the person who made these accusations. And was any of this in the press? Was it covered in the media that she had dropped Effie or was it just under the radar? Yes, it was. It was. It was at, at, at the time it was reported. Yes. But there were no like, you know, think pieces from from the people who specialize in this sort of, you know, world of celebrity coverage. There were very few people. I mean, I think the only person I saw really comment on it editorially was Harvey Levin, the impresario of TMZ, mm. who some at some point last fall said that, you know, sources had told him that the LAPD investigation had concluded, that they, they had referred all the evidence such as it was to the LAP to the district attorney. And that he, his understanding was that, that no charges would be filed against him. So, you know, aside from Harvey Levin making that comment, I really couldn't come across, you know, anyone in the entertainment media or the, or the, the people who cover this for a living following up on the story. It was just sort of, you know, kind of character assassination accusations. They kind of left him by the side of the road without a career, his reputation destroyed. And no one really was bothering to follow up on it. And so I saw, you know, as, as, as someone who does not cover the world of celebrities and, and entertainment. I've never watched an episode of the Kardashians. It's just not my scene, right? This, it, this story interested me for that reason, I think, as kind of a media, a kind of meta-media story, and also sort of kind of as a, as a cultural story for what it says about our tendency as a, as a society to sort of fall in line and adopt beliefs because they seem to be the prevalent ones without really scratching the surface and looking at the whole picture. Yeah. Okay. So what did you find out first? Well, uh, where to begin? Um, the revelation in the story that made the most headlines, and I think this is indicative of, again, the kind of media's penchant for sensationalism, was that Hammer, in our conversations, he talked about, because people want to know about where does this BDSM fetish come from? And he, he talked about how he had been sexually abused by a youth pastor when he was a boy. And he said this not as a means of kind of excusing himself, because he he did acknowledge in the piece that while he was not physically abusive to these women, he is acknowledging responsibility for perhaps being emotionally abusive, right? In the sense that he kind of swept these women up in these kind of whirlwind romance and then, you know, moved on to the next. And they were very young. So these are young women who think that maybe he's going to have a relationship with them. Yes, that was the impression that I think they had. So... That revelation that he made to me about the sexual abuse, that was what the media picked up on over the past couple of days. If you look at any of the kind of press reports, and there's been press reports all over the place, they seize on that. I don't think that's really the most newsworthy thing. I think the more newsworthy stuff are the text messages that I obtained 
between Effie and Elizabeth Chambers, his estranged wife, where Effie is telling Elizabeth, I was pursuing him. You know, he told me repeatedly that he felt guilty about this, that he had never cheated on you before, that he felt awful about it, and I kept pursuing him. That to me seems important. And this is how long after Effie has made these initial accusations did these text messages with Elizabeth, the wife, start? These messages were before she went public with the accusations. Oh, okay, okay. Okay, because Effie told Elizabeth about it. Okay, in 2017, she came to his wife and said, I've been having an affair with your husband. And she forwarded Elizabeth some of these hot and heavy exchanges. But in in those conversations, rape was never mentioned. Mm -hmm. She never said that there was rape, that it was non-consensual. And there were other private DM conversations that Effie had, which were not reported first by me, by the way. These were sort of, you know, screen captured by Hammer fans and put on the internet, where Effie was also telling other people privately in DM messages that there was no rape, it was all consensual. So, I mean, even before I you know, published my piece, there was reason to believe that her story was inconsistent and that she had been contradicting herself. Mm-hmm. Um, there was also like the other big reveal in my piece, I think, is a psycho legal evaluation that Hammer underwent in early 2021 that Chambers made him undergo because she was in the process of trying to get sole custody of the couple's children. And for this psycho legal evaluation, both members of the couple, Chambers and Hammer, had to provide you know, references to be interviewed by these psychologists. And uh, there were some really wild accusations that Elizabeth made about her estranged husband. She said that the FBI was investigating him. She said that Hammer was grooming girls as young as 15. She said that 17 girls had come forward to her with rape allegations against Mr. Hammer. And that Mr. Hammer has been raping girls for over five years. And that she had known this during the marriage or she was just now finding this out? Just finding it out. Right, okay. Okay, she also said that Mr. Hammer had put in writing that he wants to kill his children. Mm -hmm. She um, basically, you know, in, in the weeks after this scandal became public, Chambers was getting a lot of, there was a lot of incoming over the transom, right? And so she she referred one person, a man from Bogota, Colombia, who presumably contacted her, who said that Hammer had sexually violated him, uh, that Hammer had told him that guys could endure more pain. He said that Hammer cut him with paper and glass and sucked his blood and inserted a condom wrapper into him. And when the evaluators asked this man, where did you meet Army Hammer? He refused to provide a specific location. Okay. So all these crazy accusations that Elizabeth was basically forwarding on to these evaluators were contained in this report. The report concluded after subjecting Hammer to kind of a, you know, a battery of psychological tests, and they interviewed all these people around him. They found that he may have sexual compulsion issues, but it was not out of control. They said that concerns about Mr. Hammer being a perpetrator of sexual violence are unfounded. The impression may be formed that Mr. Hammer is sexually deviant and inclined to sexual violence due to the practice of BDSM, but BDSM is no longer regarded as abnormal or sexual deviance. Mm -hmm. Most importantly, they said that he was not a threat to his children or to anyone else. So I think that's, you know, important evidence, right? Yeah. But unfortunately, it was a revelation of his childhood sexual abuse that the media seems to be most interested in. Huh. Since reading your story, you're saying, what do you mean? 
interests that the, the media is most interested over in the past sec- couple of days since yes, my, with since my story. exclusive. Yeah. God, because I'm listening to this and I'm thinking about like the satanic preschool panic. Mm-hmm. That's like this, just this sort of mass. Yep. What do they call it? Mass form, mass formation, psychosis, oh, psychosis. or yeah. whatever. Like the idea that one person tells a story about horrific abuse and then the next person copies it and embellishes from there. It's yeah. like this domino effect. And it's so, okay. And do we know, was there, it sounds like there was some initial collusion between Elizabeth, the wife yeah. and Effie. Yeah. And did you get the sense that they were sort of engineering this or was this, this all sort of happening on its own. Well, when Effie first came out with her accusations, followed by the other women, Elizabeth posted a, a post on Instagram. It was her first sort of, you know, official statement. And she said that she was shocked, surprised by all this, and she was going to, you know, learn and listen to these women. Mm-hmm. But it later, it later emerged, and this was this was actually reported last fall, that Elizabeth had been in touch with Effie in the months leading up to this, that she had actually referred Gloria Allred to her, that she had, she had given Effie Gloria Allred's email, that she had been you know persuading her to make public statements about this. She also was reportedly commandeering a friend's email address and posing as that friend to email members of the media with accusations about Hammer. Elizabeth. Um, Elizabeth was, right. And this was this, yeah. So this was in, in what seems to be an attempt to harm his reputation in the press and gain custody, sole custody of, of the children. And the divorce, are they already divorced at this point? No, no they're, they're never, they're, they're not divorced. They're still, okay. She, has, so she they're, has not, she, according to Hammer, she has not signed the papers yet. Okay. So it's also so interesting that this comes up in the context of a custody battle. It's also, it's reminding me, for instance, of the Mia Farrow, Woody Allen case. Absolutely. One of my favorite topics. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, as you're reporting this, First of all, how long did you spend on this? And what was it like just trying to talk to these people and sort out who's who and who's real and who's not? Like, what was it like? It was a hard story. It took a long time. It probably took two to three months. Um, I mean, I was working on other things, right? So cumulatively, maybe two, two to three months. There were a lot of Instagram stories that I had to go through because so much of this was being waged and kind of litigated over social media. There were, I mean, there's the interviews with Hammer and lots of follow-up interviews with him. I obtained, you know, medical records from him. This was another aspect of the story that I first reported, which was that, you know, he had injured himself in January of 2021, about three months before the alleged rape. He had severely injured his right pectoral muscle while lifting weights. He had to have emergency surgery. He was in a sling. And he showed me uh, medical records of physical therapy appointments, you know, in the days before and the days after this alleged rape occurred. And he was not able to lift weights again until over a year after the alleged rape. And he, we know this because he announced it on Twitter in summer of June, in June 2018. So over a year after the rape, he said, ah, I'm finally back to, you know, working on my pecs again. So I find it hard to believe that someone could rape another person for over four hours and bang their head against a wall repeatedly and smack their feet with a riding crop if they don't have the full use of their right arm, their dominant limb. That just seems kind of questionable to me. 
Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know what you would say to that, but well, it does you seem have, have <laughs> superhuman strength in that situation. Like lifting, lifting a car off of a child. If you're, if you're determined to uh, assault somebody, I suppose you could find it within yourself. He's a big guy. He's much bigger than Effie, but still, I, th- I think that that puts, let's just say it puts a dent in the narrative, right? Mm-hmm. So there was that. Um, I approached obviously all the women who made accusations against him. None of them would Talk to me on the record, Effie. And how many of them were there? Because I was having a hard time keeping everybody straight. I mean, for instance, there's this Paige Lorenz. She's a 22-year-old Instagram influencer. So there's only, yeah, so there's Effie who alleged the rape, uh, whom whom he did have a consensual sexual relationship with. There's Courtney Vusikovic, who is a beauty app developer whom he dated for about two months in the summer of 2020, um, who appears in this very sensational documentary, The House of Hammer, where she alleged that he subjected her to these sort of terrifying BDSM practices. But again, she's not accusing him of rape or any legal actionable crimes, and she hasn't filed any sort of civil suit against him. And then there's Paige Lawrence, who is another young woman. She's the one who said that Hammer, according to her, she said Hammer carved his initial near her vagina with a knife about an inch deep. Yeah. And that she needed a Band-Aid to cover it up afterwards. You know, he said, I mean, first of all, an inch deep would send you yeah, Band-Aid's to the emergency not room. Yeah, do much for that. Yeah, and so he said that that was, you know, he lightly scraped it. He, he and There was a tiny trickle of blood and that it was entirely consensual. That's, that's what he said. So those three women, those are the three women who made allegations against him. Then there's this other woman who features very prominently in this documentary. Her name is Julia Morrison. She's an artist whom Hammer engaged with on Instagram. And she came out saying, and they never met. She came out showing heavily edited portion of their Instagram conversations, where he talks about wanting to make women his sexual slave and tie them up in public and, you know, let, have their, let, let people use, use their bodies for free use. He shared with me the full extent of those conversations, a very small portion of which I was able to reprint. Our, our lawyers would not let us print the entire exchanges, but she told him, I want to be your sex slave. I want you to tie me up. Mm-hmm. And she sent him a photo of a Barbie doll tied up in rope. So, you know, that was a new revelation in my piece. I mean, she she said, well, we never met, but I'm sure if we did, you know, he would have harmed me because he's a predator. So she's just kind of getting in on the story. Yes. And she, she, like. I should say she minted their Instagram conversation as the first Me Too NFT. Yes, that's remarkable. How does that even work? Do you know? I, I still don't understand what NFTs are. So <laughs> that would be that would then your story. That would be the, yeah. the big news of the yeah. story. But if I will you could say, explain if you, what I mean, an NFT is. Yeah, she was referred to in multiple media accounts as being an ex-girlfriend of Hammer, a woman he never met. They never met. Okay. I was gonna say the the one with carving the letter A near her genital area, like that's that was going on in the Nixium cult. Like it sounds Mm. Like they were almost watch. I don't know if you watched that. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, that the Keith Ranieri yes, yes. case. I mean, that was his move. Yeah. He carved his initials exactly in those places. Right. Right. So it's. I mean, were they watching the documentary and then he got the idea, so he kind of scraped it in there or did his own version. You're welcome to make that conclusion That's, if you if you okay, want. Okay, I don't know. <laughs> I wasn't there. I'm gonna add my. I'm gonna chime in here and say yeah, yeah that that's what happened. Well, 
Okay. So I want to step back and kind of like talk with you more about like what's your sort of psychoanalysis of this and you're just kind of like what this makes you think about kind of where we're at culturally and with regard to BDSM and sex and talking about sex and influencers and all of that. But just so we're caught up, by the time you filed the story, was he nothing had changed. Like he's basically, he's excommunicated. Yep. The, the issue, is, so he's not facing criminal charges. The issue for him is that he cannot work. He has no agent. He is, nobody is going to hire him for anything. He has no relationships. Like what is his life like at this point? So there's, I should say there's an open investigation. This investigation has not been closed yet. Right. And so he has this hanging over him in spite of the fact that the main accuser, the only accuser, has reportedly refused to sign an affidavit. And so he's in this kind of purgatory. He's in this limbo legally, which I think is terrible. I think it's really unfortunate that someone would be in that situation. In terms of his career, yes, he does not. He, he was dropped from every project that he had. And he had a lot of prestigious projects lined up. I think I mentioned them at the outset of the show. Yeah. Last summer, he was photographed selling timeshares in the Cayman Islands. And I should add here that, you know, yes, he comes from a very wealthy family, but he he made the vow when he was a young man that he did not want to rely on his family wealth. So he's essentially broke. He has a friend who works at a resort in the Cayman Islands where, where he lives part of the time. And he decided that he needed to make some money and he would maybe try to sell some timeshares. And someone took a photograph of it and sent it to TMZ and it blew up. And then he got wrapped up in a immigration investigation because he didn't have papers to be working. So that opportunity mm. was uh, fell by the wayside. Okay. So now he's working as a sober companion. You know, He entered rehab uh, in early 2021 and he's sober now. And he's working as a sober companion, meaning he'll he's going to move in with a recovering addict who just got out of rehab and, you know, cook for them and make sure they go to recovery meetings and get and help and help that person get their life together. So that's that's what he's doing. And I assume he does not have any sort of custody. Does he have visitation rights? With oh, no, no, he children? has. He won partial custody. That was the result. Oh. Of, that was the result of the psycholegal evaluation was that it found him to be a fine father who was not who did not present a threat. And yes, he has partial custody of his kids. OK, OK. And I want to ask you one more thing here. Effie, her Instagram account was called House of Effie. Yeah. Her name is Efrosina Angelova. She's 19 years old at the time? No, no, no. She was 20 at the time. I think she's 24 now. Okay. Yeah. So what's she all about, as far as you can tell? Uh, she's Bulgarian, and it's been reported online that she had worked at a sex club called Sanctum. I wasn't able to verify that, but there's lots of circumstantial evidence to indicate that, that she did do that for a living at some point. Um, she reached out to him in October 2016, asking if he would support a charity that she claimed to work for, helping autistic children. And Hammer has an autistic uh, family member, so this was of personal interest to him. Mm -hmm. The conversation, you know, he was trying to get more information about it and the kind of, you know, she, she wasn't really willing to give it, I guess. Um, and that's when she said, oh, and I, according to him, she said, oh, I work in a dungeon or <laughs> a sex dungeon. Uh -huh. And that was... That's sort of, he gave the analogy of a beach ball being submerged underwater and the beach ball exploding out of the water, right? So that he had all this kind of pent up fascination and interest in BDSM, which he had never really acted upon. 
because he met his wife when he was young. He met his wife, I think, when he was 19 or 20, and he, they married when he was 23. And so, you know, his wife wasn't really into that. And so he kind of had this repressed, you know, interest in BDSM. And so that was unleashed when she contacted him. And then that led to their sexual relationship. And, he, and what, what he describes is they had something called a consensual non-consent scene, mm-hmm. which is where you offer each other mutual consent in advance of a sexual experience where you are you know, imitating force, right? It's basically kind of rape play. And as he describes it, this was meticulously planned out in advance that she basically introduced him to this world of BDSM, that they planned uh, the particular, you know, Starbucks where he would, you know, see her and he would follow her from the Starbucks to her home. She would leave the door unlocked. He would come in and they would engage in consensual non-consent sex, right? Okay. That's, that's her story. After he ended the relationship, she then proceeded to follow him around the world to various places. She was on the red carpet. At in London for the premiere of Call Me by Your Name, with him, uh, not with him, not with no. him. She, so, she can she can be seen in the background. Okay, he said, and I've received confirmation that she followed him to a hotel in London where he was doing publicity for the film on the basis of sex, uh, where he where he portrayed Ruth Bader Ginsburg's husband, and that he and that he had to get the security at that hotel to physically remove her from the premises. Okay. Uh, she followed him to Cannes, where she believed he was going to be in Cannes for the festival. He happened not to be. She followed him to Nice, France, where he was filming a movie. She went to Crema, which was the Italian village where Call Me By Your Name was filmed. She tracked down the director of that movie, Luca Guadagnino, and took a selfie with him. Okay. So, so he portrays this as, <laughs> as basically, you know, stalker behavior. Right. Okay, and sorry, just to make sure we have the timeline. So, had the accusations come? This was all forth, before. All this before. was all before okay. these. Ac- so, yeah. Elizabeth, the wife, would not have had any idea this was going on at the. At I don't time. know about that because it's unclear. So, she Effie first made contact with Elizabeth, I believe, in the fall of 2017, when Hammer admitted to his wife that he had had this affair, and then Effie got in contact with Elizabeth and forwarded Elizabeth some of her text messages with Hammer. I'm not sure how much in contact they were over the ensuing three years, but they did at some point establish contact in the fall of 2020, several months before the scandal broke. And that's when Elizabeth was encouraging Effie to get in touch with Gloria Allred and to essentially help okay. her. Yeah. So the opportunity becomes available for- After Elizabeth. the separation, after yes. they announced their separation, Elizabeth is then getting in touch. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now, and one more thing. Did Effie know about Hammer's BDSM predilections before she sent him that initial message? So she might have in the sense that it, it had been reported years ago that Hammer was following some uh, social media accounts. I think there were Instagram accounts devoted to the Japanese art of Shibaru or Shibari, I think it's called, which is sort of a Japanese erotic practice involving ropes. And it, and some some people on the internet noticed that he was following these accounts and they kind of made fun of him for it. So she might have seen that. In fact, I'm, I'm almost positive she did because she was clearly obsessed with him. Um, and perhaps that was the indication that he had these interests. We're going to pause here for a short message from me. 
Are you appreciating this conversation and wishing there were more like it out there? Well, there are lots more right here. I've been doing this show every week for more than two years, and I pretty much do it all by myself. I'm not affiliated with any institution, media company, or secret investment cabal. I do it because I love it. And if you love it or even like it, I hope you'll consider supporting it in any way that makes sense for you. The old way of doing that was through Patreon. Now listeners support the podcast through my Substack page, megandaum.substack.com. You can subscribe for free, or you can become a paid subscriber for as little as $7 a month. That gets you extras related to the unspeakable. Things like early and ad-free access to the show, access to bonus content, and the opportunity to leave comments. If you join at the founding member level, you can join us every month on Zoom, where a bunch of us get together and talk about recent episodes. Best of all, if you become a paying subscriber at any level, you'll never have to hear this message again. So go to megandaum.substack.com. That's M-E-G-H-A-N-D-A-U-M and join our community on the level that's right for you. And honestly, just telling people about the podcast, sharing it with friends, spreading the word means more to me than anything. So thank you for listening to the show, for making the unspeakable worth speaking about. And with that, back to the interview. To me, the most remarkable moment in the piece is your conversation with Dan Savage, the sex and relationship columnist. He's actually been a guest on this show. And he says these encounters illustrate what he says, the severe complications of being rich, famous, and kinky. You can't put that on Tinder because TMZ is going to come find you. It's like kinky famous people today are what gay famous people were a generation or two ago. That that's fascinating. Yeah. So, you know, what do you do if you're famous and kinky? You can't go on to Tinder or whatever or Grindr if you're gay, right? It's really hard to do that. So when a woman comes along who is very well versed and experienced in your particular kinks, one can understand how that might be seen as a very attractive opportunity. And he was tempted, you know, and and yes, he cheated on his wife and he owns that. And I should also say, you know, he owns uh, being emotionally abusive to Courtney and Paige. You know, I, I, you know, he was very clear about this. He said, I was not physically abusive. Okay. I did not force anyone to do anything they didn't want to do. Everything was consensual. The consent is the whole part of it. You know, that's, I get, he says, I get pleasure from giving people pleasure. Okay. So if someone doesn't want to do something that doesn't turn me on, uh, there, you know, that turns on rapists. That's what get, you know, if you're a rapist, that's what you want. Mm -hmm. That's not what turns him on. Right. But he says, I was emotionally abusive to these women. And he, you know, he says I was a rich and famous celebrity. I was older. There was a power imbalance in these relationships. And, you know, maybe these women, maybe Courtney and Paige did things with me that they would not have done with someone who wasn't a celebrity and didn't have that kind of charisma and that, mm -hmm. that status that he had. So the consent issue comes up. Dan Savage says, just getting consent and this is in BDSM, getting a yes and ticking that box isn't enough as someone might consent to your kinks, not because they're appealing to them, but because they're attracted to fame and power. If you discard that person in two months and that was your plan all along, they will look back on that sexual activity that they consented to and feel very violated. Well, this is also something that probably is another reason this would not have happened 20 years ago because people didn't think about consent the way they do now. Mm. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I think that's probably true. I think I think Me Too really opened up that conversation, which is a necessary conversation. So where you you're a political reporter. This is mm-hmm. like you said in the beginning, this is not this is not the area you generally cover. Um you did, however, write a, a book about closeted politicians. Yeah. And so this is in your wheelhouse to some extent. So I'm yeah. wondering like what your sort of you know, pull back the camera a little bit and what are your sort of broad strokes thoughts? Well, I think it shows the power of secrets. And, you know, my book is about the specter of homosexuality in American politics in the 20th century, when homosexuality was really the most dangerous and powerful secret in Washington. The mere insinuation of it could destroy a career. And I think, you know, Army Hammer was really um, ruined or he was kind of overpowered by his secrets, you know, by this, this secret of his sexual abuse as a child, the secret uh, of, his, of his interest in BDSM, right? And that, that the repression that that caused became so overpowering in the sense that he got involved in sexual relationships that, while according to him, were not violent. They certainly led to situation that ultimately destroyed his career. And the revelation of those secrets has been used to destroy his reputation. I mean, there's been a lot of, you know, in my opinion, I think kink shaming, you know, for instance, the cannibalism accusation, which is- Oh yeah, let's get to that. Which is really the most explosive accusation. I mean, what we're talking about here are messages, text messages, where he is verbalizing or expressing fantasies about cooking and eating you know, various body parts. Okay. That's the extent of it. It's not, I mean, no one is accusing him of actually slicing open a woman's chest and cutting out her rib, her rib cage and boiling it and eating it. Now, look, I don't see the appeal in cannibalism fetishes or verbalizing it. It's not my thing. But if these are uh, exchanges that are going on between two consenting adults, then I don't really see where it's my place to judge that. And they are. And one of the things I show in the story is that there, there are two sides to these text messages, right? There's Army Hammer and then the women. And we were only seeing one half of those text message exchanges. Uh, in, the, in the media reports over the past two years, You know, I've been able to show, hey, there's a context here. You can't just take one side of a text message exchange and say that this is the... And, and then form a judgment about someone, right? So... I we we in airmail we we print some of the messages that Effie sent to Army Hammer. Mm-hmm, yeah. uh, we publish some of the messages that Courtney Vusikovich wrote Army Hammer, in which she said that she wanted to you know cut off his head and eat it. So and then Julie and then Julia Morrison was saying even more lurid things. Yeah. So I just yeah. I, what do you I, think I, they I, wanted to get out of it? Like, what do you think was Effie's initial motivation? You know, Megan, I don't think I can say, I don't think I can answer that question. I'm not a psychiatrist. And I think that's really what is required here. I think, you know, uh, yeah. But I mean, that's, is it just money? I, I know. I don't know. I don't think it's money because she's not suing him. That's right. He well, never but, got a, de- he never got a demand letter, right? That's the other thing oh, that she never I reveal did, in the story. Oh, Gloria right. Allred, Gloria Allred on behalf of her client at the time, never sent a demand letter, which is something that usually happens in these cases, right? Before... If you don't want to bring it to trial or if you don't want to bring a civil suit, 
particularly when you're dealing with a rich and famous person, you try to get a settlement, right? And he never got that. So I'm not, I don't think money is the issue here. I think but initially she could have said, I, if you don't, you know, do something for me, I'm going to call your wife or I'm going to make your life hell. It so wasn't he like wanted, that. yeah. So she wanted him to break up with his wife. Okay. That's what F you wanted. And he, he refused to do that. And I think that's the moment where this really turned sour. And with the other two women too, you know, they, he, at that point he was, he had left his wife with Courtney and Paige. He had already separated, but he made it clear to them that he was not, you know, he had just gotten out of a decade long marriage, right? He was not ready to jump into another serious relationship with either of these women. And I think they were expecting something more from him. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he, you know, he, as he said, he ended the relationship, he dumped them and moved on. We talk about BDSM being the new stigma, the way homosexuality was in the past. Your book is called Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. Did it come out last year? Last uh, summer. Last, last summer. summer. Yeah. When you were reporting that book, did you find stories that mirror this one in any way? But, you know, it happened obviously before the age of social media and we're just simply about being gay. Um, well, it's interesting because that charge, the charge that gay people were more susceptible to blackmail because they had this deep, dark secret, that was the basis for firing gay people from government jobs. It was the basis for excluding them from government jobs. There was a purge of gay people called the Lavender Scare that went on longer than the Red Scare. When was that? When was that going on? It started in the late 40s. And it wasn't until 1975 that the Civil Service Commission removed homosexuality as a prohibition on getting a federal government job. And it wasn't until 1995 that President Clinton lifted the ban on gay people being able to receive security clearances. So it went on for a long time, and a lot of people had their lives ruined by this. And in fact, there was not a single example of a gay person, a gay government worker, who was blackmailed into turning over secrets to a a foreign power. So there was never actual evidence for it. That's not to say that the the threat of the homosexual exposure was, was was a very powerful, potent threat in American politics. And you know, the mere existence of a gay rumor could really destroy someone's political career. Um, and there were plenty of gay people who were fired when it was discovered that they were gay, not even that they'd done anything wrong. Mm-hmm. Just the mere, you know, if you were a gay man and you were arrested for, you know, loitering in a public park, which is how a lot of gay men at the time met one another for for sex. If you were arrested for that, then that would be the end of your career. Right. Um, so this was a very powerful weapon in American politics. Um, I, I would make a distinction with the BDSM because I, I think, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't think BDSM or kinks are an orientation in the way that homosexuality is. I mean, that's an inborn trait, right? It's no different than having blue eyes or being left-handed. Yeah. And so I wouldn't want to kind of elevate, you know, BDSM to the level of a protected class, right? In the same way that being black or being gay is. But I, that, that doesn't mean that we can't draw comparisons. And I, and I do think a lot of the discussion that's occurred around this case does have a, a kind of puritanical shaming aspect to it. And in fact, one of the people I interviewed for this story, really the only person who would go on the record in the industry in support of Army Hammer was a producer named Howard Rosenman, who, who produced Call Me By Your Name and is, is a real kind of legendary Hollywood producer and an and a openly gay man and has been openly gay in the industry for a long time. And he said, as a gay man, you know, I, I found the, the kink shaming here really um, abhorrent and inappropriate 
And he said, to quote him, he said the accusations were bullshit and Hammer deserves a second chance. But he was the only person I could get really to speak on the record about this. Yeah, I want to ask you about a little bit more about the reporting. But but before I forget, you know, the the BDSM, there is an activist community around it now. Mm. And I had a guest on last week, just last week, Richie Hardcore, who is a guy from New Zealand who's a, uh, he does a lot of speaking and he's an educator about, you know, issues around masculinity and sexuality. And, And we were talking about how certain people think that kink is like an identity Mm. and that it should be a protected class. And so there's this kind of, there's a fetishization of of kink, so to speak. And so there, there's kind of this idea that it's somehow wrong to talk about it in negative terms at all. But I think what that does is, people don't really understand how it works. So like, it's not something I know a lot about, but it sounds like there are very specific rules and there's almost like a you know pretty strict moral code within the kink community about how you conduct yourself and how you get consent and how you're always checking back in. And if people don't understand those nuances, then it's going to be very easy for them to say, oh, he's just a perv kind of thing. Yeah, and I think that's part of what Hammer has, I think that, that's hurt Hammer, right? Is the fact that we don't, most people don't know about this world. They don't. They don't know about the the ins and outs about it. But at the same time, you know, I don't. I mean, do do you remember this guy Sam Brinton, who was the the gender fluid non binary uh, employee in the in the Department of Energy, who was arrested for stealing women's uh, bags a couple months ago? Oh, did you follow, yeah, vaguely. Did you I did not. I did. I did not do an episode on that. But yeah, it's, uh, and I never mean, too late. You know, and and he was sort of portrayed as this great kind of civil rights icon because he was very open about his BDSM practices and he would give lectures and seminars about spanking and pup play, which is when you basically dress up like a dog and, you know, you pretend to be a, a, a puppy and you have a master. Oh. And again, who, you know, I'm not going to judge that if that's what consenting adults want to do. At the same time, I don't really think that this is something that a public servant needs to be proclaiming to the world. I mean, I'm gay and, or like take Pete Buttigieg. I don't know what Pete Buttigieg, Pete Buttigieg doesn't talk about whether he's a top or a bottom. He doesn't get into the particulars of what his sexual interests are. And I don't see why, you know, I, that that's, that's appropriate behavior for a public servant. Right. So I don't, I don't think that these, you're, you're, these are, there's a realm of your life that should be private. Okay, uh, you're you're welcome to share it if you if you want, but uh, I think there are certain expectations that some people have that they want to keep this aspect of their lives private. And I don't like the conflation of homosexuality with kinks in BDSM. Right. Well, and talking about sex a lot. I mean, and this gets into the details right. of the "Don't Say Gay" bill. Right. Right. I mean, what's really what what is the don't what is the DeSantis's don't say gay bill? What does it really say? What's really in there? Is it? I mean, I, we don't I need to derail this conversation and get into that, but this is probably something that you do know about. Like my my understanding is that it has to do with like appropriate curriculum. Is it really that if you're a gay teacher, you're not allowed to refer to your partner even in the most anodyne way? That's that was my worry about it. I think the bill was so vaguely worded that it could be it could be used to um, prosecute or to harm a gay teacher who mentioned that they have a partner or whatnot. I think that 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 was my problem with the bill. But yes, if it's only if if the intent is only to 
you know, regulate age-appropriate sex education. And I think that that's something that reasonable people should be, you know, we should be able to agree on that, that there are certain things that, you know, third graders should not be taught. And by the way, that has nothing to do with sexual orientation. I mean, that has to do with heterosexual sex or 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 gay relationships as well. I think I think the concern with that bill is that it was being used to stigmatize um, the gay community and kind of single out gay people. Yeah, no, of course, but you're right. It's just so ambiguous. That's what makes it dangerous. Well, so in terms of Hollywood, you could only get this one Howard Rosenman. Yeah. To go on the record, what was the sense that you got from executives? people within the industry, were they like Soto Voce telling you, oh yeah, God, I think this is bullshit? Or were they just like staying away from this entirely? So, you know, Army Hammer, when I interviewed him, he actually said that he wasn't really expecting that many people to come to his defense. And uh, he used an analogy about um, a burning house. You know, he's like, my house is burning. I wouldn't expect someone to walk into my burning house. You know, his agency dropped him. He was dropped from all these projects. Dakota Johnson was one actress who made a remark a while ago, sort of mildly supportive of him, where she said cancel culture is a bitch or something like that. But then she got a lot of online, yeah. you know, flack for that. And then just a couple down. and then just a couple of weeks ago at the Sundance Film Festival, she made a joke about Hammer being a cannibal. So it does kind of show you that, you know, once you once these accusations are made about you, you kind of have an odor, you know, you have a bad odor about you. And this is an industry that's all about image, yeah. right? And there's just... Well, and and not taking risks. The financial stakes yeah. are so high yeah. that no one's going to stick their neck out for one guy yeah. and jeopardize the whole empire. Yeah, might... so, yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. No. I mean, he doesn't... I don't think he really holds it against the people that he's worked with that they haven't kind of rushed to his public defense. You know, maybe now that my article has come out and has complicated the story, maybe more people... In the industry will, I can't say. But can you even imagine, even if everybody knows the truth, even if it was like universally acknowledged in Hollywood that this guy didn't do anything well, wrong? I will say I did. I, yeah, I did get an email from a very famous actor who I won't who I won't name, but you and your listeners will know who this person is, who commended me for the article saying this was a really important corrective to a real hy hysterical initial press coverage and it's important that it get out there. And I, I imagine that, you know, there's the people on Twitter making lots of comments. I would imagine that among the studio executives and the powerful people in Hollywood, that that's the sentiment that's probably widely shared. But again, they're not going to come out and say it publicly. Yeah. There's a lot of daylight between saying it privately and acting publicly accordingly. Yeah. Did you follow the Brock Turner case at all, the Stanford swimmer? Uh, no. This reminds me a lot of, of that. I mean, I I did a whole episode with Sarah Heppola, who's a journalist who's looked into this case a lot. I was, yeah, just, that... on, I was just on her podcast before recording yours. Oh, great. Yeah, she's a, she's a friend of mine, fr friend of the pod. Yeah, so that was a case where there's a Stanford swimmer. They're both, you know, extremely intoxicated. Uh, the, the, the woman who ended up accusing him of assault. She was in a blackout the entire time. She has absolutely no memory of what happened, but just the, the sort of the pieces that sort of came together after the fact added up to something that there's absolutely no evidence ever occurred, but because of various players and people with agendas and 
and Me Too and a whole bunch of stuff, his life is absolutely destroyed. Yeah. And there's no evidence whatsoever. Yeah. And you can't talk about it. And the few friends who stood up for him immediately, you know, one of them, one of his longtime friends who stood up for him, she was in a band, like a touring band that was, you know, their visibility was rising and the, her, the tour got canceled. The band was punished. It was just like a hot stove. Like, nope, no way. Nobody's going to st- stand up for anybody. Yeah. So, well, I mean, what do you think about the state of quote unquote cancel culture these days? Do you think that like we're coming out of this or are we in it for a while? It's a really good question. Um, I actually, I don't want to sound too self-important, but I do hope that my story causes some people to reflect on what we're doing to ourselves. Because this really was, I think, one of the most spectacular downfalls in the history of cancel culture, really. I mean, when you think of where this person stood and the accusations that were made against them and where they stand now, it's a pretty dramatic fall. Mm -hmm. And I'll just say personally, I didn't say this in the story, I don't really think that the punishment fits the crime. Because there is no crime. I mean, at least there hasn't been a crime adjudicated in a court of law. And that's supposedly the system that we have in this country for adjudicating crimes is a, is, a, is, a, is a judicial process. And that has not, you know, he has not been found guilty. He's been tried and convicted and sentenced in the court of public opinion. But how do you say that? But people will say, well, the punishment, he's not in prison. He's not probably not going to prison. The punishment is uh, is social and professional annihilation. That's not a death sentence, right. but it effectively is. It's it's hard to talk about this stuff without, you know, sort of sounding like, oh, no, they're mad at me on Twitter and I can't get a job. Like, it is devastating. Yes. It's a, it's a professional death. It's a social death. Well, yeah. And he told me that he attempted suicide uh, yeah. at, at the height of this. So yeah, I just think we need more room for grace and understanding and empathy and redemption. And it's up to each of us as individuals to to show that and to demonstrate that. Yeah. Did you pitch this piece to various publications or was this always for airmail? It was always for airmail. Okay. Were you advised by anybody in publishing or other journalists or editors not to do this story? Um, no. I mean, I kind of kept it tight to my chest just because I didn't want, I kind of wanted it to make a splash. And I, yeah, so I didn't really talk about it with that many people. I also wasn't really that concerned for my own reputation. Maybe I should be, (laughs) maybe I should have been. I don't know. I mean, there was a small part of me that was saying, oh God, am I going to be tarred by implication merely for printing this? And I don't think that it was a very, I mean, I'm, I'm an, an opinion writer mostly. Um, but I don't think that this article was very polemical at all. And I don't think that I expressed a very strong opinion in it. I think it was a mostly re- re- uh, a repertorial piece. I was trying to bring new facts to bear. Um, but there, yeah, there was a little part of me that was concerned, you know, what I, what I face repercussions just for interviewing him, right? And just, just for hearing, hearing and sharing his side of the story. You know, I always thought that's what a journalist is supposed to do, is to find those stories that haven't been told. And that's why I wrote my book on the secret history of gay Washington, because there was this huge part of our history that hadn't been told before, right? All the, the, the history of gay people in our nation's capital. 
during the Cold War. It was just a, it just was a, was a big meaty story that seemed to be crying out for someone to write a book about it. And so that's why I was attracted to that. And I think it was a similar impulse that drove me to this was that it was a big scoop. Have you gotten flack for this at all? Uh, well, Effie, I, I, she blocked me on Instagram, but people have forwarded me messages. You know, she's called me a right wing pseudo journalist and oh. has threatened to sue me for defamation. But aside from that, there have been a few, maybe, maybe there's some people I don't, my, I don't really use Twitter that much anymore. I mean, I've, I've seen some Twitter accounts of, uh, maybe criticize me for giving a platform to an abuser, mm-hmm. to, to a victimizer of women. But aside from that, no. I mean, the reaction has been mostly positive. I mean, even people who tell me that, you know, they think Army Hammer's a weirdo and they think that he, you know, does, that they don't really like him anymore, right? Even, even those people can appreciate that this was an important story to get and an important story to tell. Yeah. Does Army say what he is going to do if he can't get his reputation back. I mean, presumably he's never going to be a major star. Is there any path to be to back to being an A-lister? I don't think so. I don't think so either. Um, you know, I brought up with him the the case of Robert Downey Jr., who's been something of a kind of behind the scenes mentor to him, I guess, who also suffered, who also went through uh, real serious battles with drug and alcohol addiction and served time in prison, actually. But the case with Robert Downey Jr. is different because there was no allegations of, you know, abusing other people. Yeah, he was self-destructive. It was self-destructive behavior. So when there's other, when there's, you know, alleged victims involved, I think it's really hard. I think it's, it's really difficult for me to see how Army Hammer makes a comeback in the industry. It really is. What does he say he's going to do? Does, did he talk to you about his plans? Not in the long term. I mean, he said, you know, he's working as a sober counselor yeah. for now, a sober companion, and that's what he's doing for now. Yeah. Wow. Well, congratulations on the story. I can Thank tell you. what an enormous amount of work it was. And um, I'm really glad it is out there. And I'm glad that people are, are taking it seriously. I'm going to keep you for some uh, overtime. Sure. But before that, uh, tell us where we can find you, all of that. I'm on Twitter, J-K-I-R-C-H-I-C-K. Even though you don't check your Twitter. You yeah, just I don't said, really so, use my okay, Twitter. So don't get any big ideas, people. Or my website, jameskirchick.com. And then there's my book, Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. And congratulations on the piece. Thank you, Megan. That was the main part of my conversation with Jamie Kerchick. Jamie is a columnist for Tablet Magazine and a writer for the digital news and culture site Airmail, where his article, Army Hammer Breaks His Silence, was published on February 4th. He's also the author of the book Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington, which was published last summer. Uh, Again, if you want to hear the bonus content... We continued our conversation after we signed off here and talked about some other stuff. Go to megandaum.substack.com and become a paying subscriber at any level. I'm doing bonus content as much as possible this year, and it's really good. I'm telling you, people are really liking it. I love doing it. The guests seem to enjoy it. So take advantage of that if you are so inclined. Also, I realize I maybe should have mentioned this at the top, but I'm telling you now, the unspeakeasy, my heterodox women's community, my intellectual community for free-thinking women, has another retreat coming up uh, in Minneapolis, May 8th through 11th. 
Uh, I have just published information about that on the unspeakeasy.com. It's a retreat, three nights, you know, four days kind of thing. Space is very limited. So if you are interested, check it out. Go to the unspeakeasy.com, email me, and I will send you information. I don't post or publish specific information about the retreats, but I will be happy to pass along the details if you write to me. I think that's it for now. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Mm-hmm.